I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Scripture comes from Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 to 17 and 20 to 28. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw, tell me its interpretation. Upon my bed, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it, the birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living things were being fed. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, 
Cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches. But leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of an animal be given to him. And let seven times pass over him. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by the order of the holy ones. In the order that all who live may know what the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets, and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong, so that its top reached the heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all, under which animals of the field lived, and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests. It is you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reaches to heaven, and your sovereignty to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field, until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and it is a decree for the Most High that has come upon my lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals, and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness, and your inequities with mercy to the oppressed, so that the prosperity may be prolonged. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you have not been with us up until now, we are studying, um, this is what we do over the summer. We dive into one book of the Bible really deeply, a book of the Bible that we think um, maybe people don't get or that you would have no idea what's in it. Uh, and so we're doing it in Daniel. But the way that is when you dive into a book of the Bible is um, you read a lot of scripture in church <laughs> during this time. So um, if you're thinking that was the longest passage, there have actually been longer ones some other weeks. So um, be glad you're not in that week. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to give you a lot of background today, so it's going to be good. I'm going to catch you up so that you know where we are. Um, so yesterday, Chris and I were up at the Gaylord uh, for this huge basketball tournament. It's a tournament for travel basketball teams, and the main purpose is for them to get exposure to coaches, college coaches. So they have seats over here that are just for college coaches. And it happens to be that Chris's 16-year-old niece was coming here in this area, they're from Ohio for this, um, this basketball tournament, and we got to watch her, and her team was really, really good, um, not as good as the other team. They were, there were like six six-footers on that team, and they were like, oh, Lord. Um, but all the, teams, all the teams there were incredible, um, and all these 16, and eight year, eight, 16 to 18-year-olds, some of whom already have like full-ride scholarships um, to multiple universities already. Um, and so a common conversation while we were together um, with the family was how grueling and exhausting travel sports are for family. 
And any family is like, yes, I have to decide, am I going to do that? And what does that look like? And how it's expensive too, right? It's expensive. Um, and how their family who are devout Catholic have not been to church for multiple months on end because they just are traveling all the time and they're so tired of it. So they're looking forward to returning home. And I turned to Chris at one point while we were watching and I said, seriously, like with my job, we wouldn't ever be able to enroll our kids in some travel sports. <laughs> I mean, because I work on Sundays and Chris just looked at me and, and like chuckled and he said, um, Michelle, look at us. <laughs> the chances of us having a kid that athletic is like <laughs> literally next to none. <laughs> Odds are our kids are, are not going to be recruited for, travel, for a travel league, um, which is true. Like that, that is true. It's true. But it got me thinking, Chris and I um, did play some church softball together back in the day. And I was, of course, um, awful awful. Uh, and so they would make me catcher at this time. Uh, they would make me the catcher and would, I was, was awful because I can't catch. Um, but that's what they do to make you feel like you're a part of the team, I guess. Um, and there were multiple instances where they threw the ball at me. I got a black, I got a black eye one time because I can't catch. <laughs> um, and glasses are broken and scrapes on my face from the glass of the glasses. But uh, my asset, the one asset I had was that I could, I could get walked a lot. Um, and it's, I was horrible at hitting. I didn't, I, and the reason why I was horrible at it was because I was scared of the ball coming towards me. And so every time somebody would, would throw the ball, and it's softball, right? <laughs> like, so let's remember it's not, this is not fast pitch. Um, but every time I would like kind of flinch and close my eyes as they're throwing the ball. <laughs> Look at her, she feels really bad for me. She's, <laughs> um, I kind of flinch and like close my eyes. And the one thing, what did you think the coach would yell at me all the time? Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Yeah, that's, that's all I heard was, Michelle, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. Because um, if you want to hit it, if you want to hit it, you've got to be able to see it, right? Um, that's a crucial part of softball and baseball. Wherever you're looking, whatever Whatever you're focused on is the direction your body swings, right? Whatever you're focused on. Similarly, um, have you tried to teach a teenager how to drive recently? Or been somebody who has learned how to drive recently, right? Um, one of the hardest things to teach a teenager is when they check their mirror, not to swerve in the direction when they turn their eyes. Was that hard to learn, kind of? Maybe you look like you mastered it right away. Yeah, you're perfect. You're a perfect <laughs> child. Um, but yeah. Check your right mirror. No, do not go into the lane as you check your right mirror. Stay in the lane you're supposed to. Um, it's difficult at, at first, right? But you have to, you, have to stay, um, you have to stay going the same direction even if you look. Um, where you're looking, where you're paying attention is ultimately where you steer. Jesus actually says something similar about this too. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and everything else will follow behind that. If you keep your eye on the right thing, everything else will follow. You just have to focus on the one thing that's most important. So when Jesus says, keep your eye on the kingdom, he's saying, if you focus on the way of life that I've called you to, if you focus on this way I've been living and showing you how to live, on the things God values, then everything else is going to fall in line if you focus on those things. But you have to keep your eyes on the thing that is most important. So today in Daniel... 
chapters four through five is this kind of story. This is what it's about. This is what this story is about. So I'm gonna recap a little bit, short version for those of you who've been a part of it and you're still like, I don't know what's going on here. Lots of big names, I can't keep up. And then for those of you who haven't been here up until now, you'll get the, where we are. Nebuchadnezzar is the king at this time. Um, we call him King Nebi, that's what we've been calling him here. He's the king at this point in time of the greatest empire. Basically, he is a self-made king. He has kind of built this empire out of nowhere. Nobody expected it. It's pulled it up by its bootstraps. And he is just experiencing all this great wealth and prosperity right now. He's, after besieging Jerusalem and taking all the best and brightest people of Judah and enculturating them to become good Babylonians who serve the empire and worship him, he now has promoted Daniel and promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who's Daniel? What's the name we read today? What's his real name? Belteshazzar, right? That's right. I'm not going to say very many times because I can't either. Uh, he promoted um, Belteshazzar, Daniel, and all of his other friends who got all these Babylonian names too. And over and over again, when King Nebi commands the people to submit to him, to bow down, to worship him only, Daniel and his friends, with wisdom and integrity, refuse to do so. And Nebi responds with fury and punishment, like fire last week, fire in a furnace, like throwing them into a furnace, only to find that whatever punishment he offers is no match for God. Three times it said that Nebuchadnezzar realized the power of God and was awed by this power and fell on his face before God. And then three times within a week or so after that encounter with God, he returns back to the same puffed up kingly ways. He's always been running things, forgetting everything that he saw God do the day before. This is the pattern for Nebuchadnezzar. And today, Nebi receives a dream. If you've been with us till now, this is the second dream for him. And Daniel, the main character, Belthazar, <laughs> the main character is going to interpret this dream for him just like he did the first time and with echoes of the first time. But ultimately, the thing that's placed in front of Nebi is whether he's going to keep his eyes focused on his own kingdom, his own prosperity, his own might, and the end results of all that, or whether he's going to focus his eyes on God and God's kingdom so that everything else can fall in line behind that. And so that's the setup for this story. And honestly, it's the moral of the whole story. If you read chapter four at a first glance, it seems to be the story of Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebi, but really it turns out to be the story of Daniel in the end. Daniel's not in it much, but it sort of turns out to be the story of Daniel and about where Daniel keeps his eyes. And so let's review what the, we just heard a few, um, few minutes ago. It says, Nebi was living at ease in his home and prospering all the wealth and prosperity, Right? and he receives this dream. And the dream is something like this, um, the dream that he tells Daniel about, hoping that Daniel will interpret it. Upon my bed, I saw this tree at the center of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew great and strong. And then this weird voice appears in my dream and says, you are to cut down that tree and chop off its branches and strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit let him be bathed with the dew of heaven. And the sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers and the decision is given by order of the holy ones that the most high sovereign God is the only one over the kingdom of mortals. You are to chop down that tree. And then Daniel responds, Belteshazzar responds, my Lord, this dream must be from someone who hates you 
because it's awful, and I'm about to tell you why. (laughs) This tree that you saw is you, full branches, high and mighty. This tree that you saw is you. Your greatness has increased and reaches to the heavens and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. Cut down the tree and destroy it. Cut down yourself and destroy it. O king, it is the decree of the most high God. You shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins. Reading this story and the context of where we've been for the last few weeks keeps inviting me in. It keeps making me really interested. Um, As I look at where Nebi and his journey of faith has led him and how Daniel has helped him get to this point right now. Did you notice at the end when Christian read it said, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So every bit that he dreamed came upon him. He is cut down. He is sent out into the wilderness like John the Baptist. He becomes nothing. He loses his power. He loses his prosperity in this repenting of his sins. And I, I I think about this for a second, and I think, if it were me, if it were me, how would I interact with King Nebuchadnezzar? How would I be involved in this. We know Daniel has been enculturated, has been forced to take a new name that is the name of Babylonian gods, forced to eat foods and refuses to submit to this. And I think if I was the story, I think it would be really easy for me to come to a place where I saw the king as adversary and oppressor, where I saw the king as enemy where I would have started to really just despise the king all along. He threw me into a furnace next week. Well, next week it's a new king, actually. He's not around anymore, but they get, he gets, Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den. These kings, these leaders, constantly, I could hate the king. I, I would hate the king. I would have had all of these negative thoughts. I would have entertained in my head. I would start plotting a way to kill this king, to get rid of this king. And even if I wasn't acting on all these thoughts I had, I would have started the process of dehumanizing this king so that I could understand what he's doing here and, and reject it. Yet at every single turn, it's so bizarre, Daniel seems to work for the benefit of the king. And it's hard for me to understand exactly why. Why Daniel doesn't seem to fall into the the same trap I would fall into. In chapter 4, it took us all the way to get here. What Daniel is doing, he's standing up for others, standing up for himself, standing up for something he believes in, in a way that helps the king, helps King Nebuchadnezzar, seemingly his enemy, come to a place where even his enemy can worship God. That is profound. It takes a really particular type of person. It takes a particular type of standing up, a particular type of faith, a particular type of speaking out, a type that is, I think, much harder to embody than other types. I would say for me and and probably for us more broadly in our culture, in our context, we sort of define ourselves by being able to say what we do not believe in, what we are against. We define ourselves as disagreeing with each other. If you are that, then I am this. And yet here in the midst of everyday ordinary context, 
we find ourselves in and Daniel finds his, himself in, Daniel seems to be working a different direction. And that, that direction seems to be moving, gives permission, gives freedom, and creates a mechanism by which relationships can always be renewed and restored. I keep thinking how often when I really disagree with someone, how often do I fully stop to think about the outcome of my disagreement? I am a competitive person. I like to win, I like to be right, and the more competitive I become, the more the only thing driving me is to win and to be right, and as a three, we have a tendency to do whatever it takes to win, but winning becomes like my ultimate goal, and being right or righteous of being able to identify myself as firmly planted on the moral high ground becomes my ultimate goal. But this isn't what Daniel does. In fact, at no point in time does he say, I'm right and you're wrong. There's no words even remotely like that. Daniel has this greater goal, this greater end in mind. The story isn't just about whether or not King Nebi is going to choose, whether or not he will put his eyes on one kingdom or another, because he chooses the wrong one and in the end puts his eyes on the correct kingdom. This story is instead actually evidence that all along, Daniel has been doing that exact thing, putting his eye on the right thing. And I wonder for myself mostly, but, but you all pay me to wonder about you too, right? Like that's what you, for the whole. Um, so I wonder for myself mostly, but also for society and for this church, I wonder if we have our eyes set on the right thing. Are we more concerned with making sure our side is more victorious over whatever the other side is, whatever that side is. And we will demonize that other side for sure. We will villainize the other side in order that my side might be victorious or correct. And I, I'm willing to am I willing to sacrifice the things I know are really good? And am I willing to sacrifice my own moral high ground even? Do I become the person I actually hate in the end? Do I say how terrible it is that you villainize other people? While I villainize you, while you villainize other people, do I, do I have to, cons to succumb to the same things I'm complaining about in you just for the sake of being right? Are, are we more concerned about winning an argument with our spouse or our parent or our sibling or our child or our coworker that in the end our greatest objective is not a restored and reconciled relationship with our family member or with our friend, but just proving our righteousness. So we even do this in our spiritual lives. We do this with God, too. I would call this a spiritual stubbornness that we do. No, God, I've, I've got this on my own. My kingdom's pretty secure. Have you seen my kingdom, God? <laughs> I set it up pretty nicely. Or are our eyes on, on, on a greater kingdom that, that God has invited us into? This story is absolutely about King Nebi's repentance, even if it comes from this odd moment and of him having to live like a wild animal in a field. And yet the context for this story is actually a really beautiful and wise posture that Daniel continues to take. And so I want us to think about three things as we continue on our journey together. Three things that I saw embodied in a woman who now is the director of the reconciling movement for the United Methodist Church. Her name is Helen. These three things I saw her embody. First, let me tell you a little about, bit about Helen. Helen uh, is 
um, a lesbian woman. She's about 60 years old. And as we were moving towards uh, all that was happening this year in the church and needing to really change the United States so that we can make a difference um, coming up in the upcoming um, voting and we can change maybe where, we, where the, Uni- the United Methodist Church stands on human sexuality, Helen um, took a route untraveled by most. Helen decided that after all that went down, she devoted three months of her life to taking a road trip through the South. Helen called all these little Methodist churches in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, down to Florida, into Alabama, and she said, I would, I'd love to talk with your lay leader. And she got on the phone with them, and Helen said, hey, I, I love the church. I love small churches. I'm from the South, and I love small churches in the South. That's where I grew up. And I would love to come hear your story, hear about your little church, and pray for you. Can I just come through your town? Can we set up coffee? Take me to your favorite place in town. Love to set up coffee with you. I would love to pray for you. I would love to hear about your church. And she took a road trip through the south. And she went by every one of those little churches on her road trip. And she sat down with people. And in the process of conversation, as she told them her story, well, guess what? Her faith story is very much informed by the fact that she is a lesbian. And so as that came out, a normal conversation, they were surprised, probably. But how could they deny how wonderful this woman was? How could they deny the faith that this woman had? How could they deny this woman actually had their little church at heart? She cared about their church. This was the kind of work that Helen did through the South. And to this day, when I was at annual conference, I heard them say to me over and over and over again, you want to know why these votes turned over? Helen Ride. Helen Ride was the reason why these votes turned over. Because how do you get lay, lay people, people in these little teeny southern churches, to come and vote for something bigger than their worldview can allow? Because you listened to them. You heard their story. You honored them as human beings that have their own story to tell. And then you shared yours and realized it wasn't actually that much different than yours. Helen did three things, I think that embodied this wisdom of Daniel, three things and that I'm going to kind of form in three questions for you. And, and just, just to leave this with you, first, are we defined, are we known, are you known, are you defined, is this church known and defined by what we're against or what we're for? You, are you known for what you're for or for what you're against? Helen was known for what she was for. And she didn't allow what most people were against, a drive through the South, to change that for her. Second question, are we more likely to be defined by who or what we're against? Sorry, that's the first question. Are we more likely to be defined by who or what we're against um, or what we're for? Second question, when we're in a a debate or an argument with someone, are we willing to, to sacrifice their humanity for the sake of our own victory? Helen cradled their humanity. And her victory was that they would feel heard, not that they would vote a particular way, and that she would feel heard too in the process. And then thirdly, and more broadly and simply, do we have our eyes focused on the right kingdom? Do we have our eyes focused on the kingdom of God? Nice thing about the prayer that we often pray together is that it directs us back to that kingdom. And so would you pray with me? God, we long to be like Helen. How? (laughs) I think of her story. I think of 
how many unkind words she probably received, I can't even imagine. I think of the bravery it takes to walk into churches where you know if they knew you, really. But I think of the wisdom that she embodied, that Daniel spirit that left room for the redemption of those who had a different view than her. Not only left room for it, but changed systems. That's where the change is, God. Make us people who, who embody that kind of wisdom where real change takes place, where we listen until people are heard, we understand people's humanity, and then, and then we share where we're from. We share our story, and we allow that story to change them. God, we, we, we pray for those people who are not feeling heard or for those people who are feeling very villainized. They said something, maybe they meant it, maybe they didn't, maybe they just don't even understand what they think. Maybe their, their background has shaped them in a particular way where, where things come out of their mouth and, and it's not, no, it's not good. We pray for them that, they, that a restored sense of humanity would surround them, but also that they would be changed by the wisdom of people like us, by the wisdom of people like Helen. Open our hearts and minds to a bigger world, God, but not just a bigger world in our worldview, but that just spills over into the worldviews of others until we become people who are wise, not right, but wise. God, our foolishness is plenty, and your wisdom is unending. And so we enter into that prayer where the key question is, are we feasting our eyes on the right kingdom? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You hold the reins on the sun and the moon Like horses driven by kings You cover the mountains, the valleys below
next week. Peace at the table of the Lord. There is peace at the table of the Lord.